If you would, please turn again to the book of Galatians, the first chapter. We are in the introduction. This is our fourth week of studying the book of Galatians. We're in the second half of the first five verses. But we will read the first five verses again this morning. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is God's word. Now, we saw last week that these two words contained in verse 3, grace and peace, that these two words encompass everything good we ask from God. That every spiritual need is contained in these two words. Martin Luther, I read last week, says this. He says, These two words comprehend in them whatsoever belongeth to Christianity. Grace releases sin, and peace makes the conscience quiet. The two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience. But Christ has vanquished these two monsters and trodden them underfoot, both in this world and the world to come. Here at this point, Martin Luther is very, very clear in saying that grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. But we might ask the question, how does this happen? Who would or who could do this work and how and why? And so this morning I want us to ask the first two of three questions. And then next week we'll turn to the third question. The three questions are, again, who does the work of releasing us from conscience and giving these blessings of grace and peace? Who does this work? Second, how is the work done? And third, why is the work done? First, then, who does this work? Well, verse 3 tells us. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see that it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it says God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something we should note right at the beginning. Long ago men and women of wisdom, men and women of any self-critical capacity, of any reflection, of any awareness of who they are, long ago, men and women who read history, men and women who heard Alexander Solzhenitsyn expose the Soviet Union, who went to the killing fields and saw what the Khmer Rouge did, men and women who saw what goes on here in Planned Parenthood, the killing of unborn children, Long ago, men and women of good judgment, men and women who were willing to see what was in front of their eyes, gave up hoping that man's political schemes, that the civil courts, that the Supreme Court, that a good education or that psychotherapy, that any of these things would restrain evil. Sometimes we would admit that there will be a brief period of relief from a particularly acute pain. Some of these things can help to bring this temporary relief, but not one of these things has ever given birth to anything close to a permanent state of grace and of peace. Not true grace and not real peace, not sustained over time. Rather, these are divine blessings and they only come from God. They are His good gifts. And when He gives them, they're not flitting. They don't leave. They're not temporary. But they stay with us forever. We do not hunger or thirst again because we have drunk of the living water and we have eaten the bread of life. 
But in giving these gifts, it's not accidental that the Apostle Paul, pointing to these gifts, makes a particular doctrinal statement. And again, this comes back to this theme. We, we, we go over the words of Scripture and we don't stop to meditate on the words that seem self-evident. I mean, they're just so natural, they're so normal, they're so uh, known. We're so used to hearing them, we don't stop and meditate on them. And I want us to stop for a moment and meditate on a doctrinal truth because this truth is not to be taken for granted. And that is the doctrinal truth that Scripture here makes a very specific statement about who it is that gives us this grace and peace. We know it has to come from God, but it doesn't just say grace and peace from God. But it, rather it says what? What does the text say? It says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God. And then it makes a declarative statement. It says, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go into our Father because I do that a lot. But I do want you to note that God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ are given to us in a parallel construction. In other words, it's clear from reading the text that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are equal. They're on the same level. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find this all through the New Testament. You will see that these divine blessings come from God and from Jesus, and that at sometimes one of these blessings is said to be the gift of God, other times the gift of Jesus, and then other times the other blessing is said to be the gift of Jesus, and other times it says to be the gift of God. God the Father and Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, are joined together as one in the work of salvation. In fact, they're so closely intertwined, intermingled, that again and again we see their names used interchangeably in describing this work. Note, for instance, how in the book of Galatians, the Father and Son are both spoken of as the source of grace. If you'll flip over to chapter 2, verse 21, you'll see this here, there. In chapter 2, verse 21, we see that Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of of whom? The grace of, of God. For it, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, it says this, When God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. So again, this grace is God. But then if you look at verse 6, Back towards the beginning, right after the introduction, you'll see, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you by what? The grace of Christ. And so you'll see this all through Scripture, where you'll see the grace of God, the grace of Christ, the grace of God and Jesus Christ. It is clear that the Apostle Paul, in his writing of the New Testament, equates God and Jesus Christ. He intermingles them. He commingles them. They're interchangeable. Why? Because they are two persons, but one God. And similarly, when we don't speak of the source of grace, but instead the source of peace, we see the same thing. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, just two little books after where you are. Philippians 4, chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 7, you'll see there what? It says, and the peace of, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But then, Colossians, the next little book, Colossians 3, verse 15. Colossians 3, verse 15, we see what? We see, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, coming back to our passage this morning in Galatians chapter 1, the first five verses, we see that the Apostle Paul addresses the Father and the Son together in requesting grace and peace for the Galatian Christians. In other words, when he says grace and peace to you, what he's saying is, I am asking God, this is really a prayer. We don't read it that way because we think it's, again, simply a declarative statement. But if we realize that grace and peace can only come from God, 
then we know that when he states grace and peace to you, he's saying to God, God, send your grace and your peace on these beloved believers in Galatia. And so the Apostle Paul addresses the Father and the Son together in requesting grace and peace for the Galatian Christians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. So here we see the unity of the Trinity. We have a similar joining of God the Father, God the Son, and in this case, God the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians. Don't bother turning there, but listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where we read, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you've often heard that given as a benediction at the end of a worship service. So we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Now, does this matter? Well, yes, it does matter. It matters for a whole bunch of reasons. Jesus, for instance, is not a man. He's not even a good man. He's not even a very good man. He's not even a very good prophet. Although He is all that. But Jesus is God Almighty. And this has been the confession of Christians down through the ages. So when Christians speak of God and Jesus in the same breath, when we confess together with all Christians across all time, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Virgin Mary, all right, this one who was born of the Virgin Mary, he is not a man, not a good man, not a very good man, and not a prophet, although he is all that, but he is God Almighty. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of blessing comes, the work of grace and peace in our lives, the gift All of these come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The work is done by the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the application of this truth to us today? Well, there are a whole host of them. One of them is that when the Mormons deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, we do not allow them to exhibit in the Christian Booksellers Convention not because we want to be controversial and to, and to give an, an exterior which is uh, unkind and unloving and, and, and divisive, but because if it is the Christian Booksellers' Convention, even if they name their church the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, since they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, they ought not to exhibit at the Christian Booksellers Convention. That's a very easy application for me to make to all of us because none of us have to make the decision about who exhibits in the Christian Booksellers Convention. Right? But then ask yourself, what does it mean when a Mormon or two Mormon missionaries come to your door? And what does it mean when you see them going to the door of your neighbor across the street who is an unbeliever or who is a new baby believer? Does the fact that they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ have any concrete implications for how you conduct your life in the next 20 minutes? Think this through. If somebody denies the divinity of Christ and is going to a new Christian across the street to talk to them and witness to them about their what? Heresy? About their idolatry? About their denial of the Son of God? Do you have an obligation to protect the souls in your neighborhood? How else does it apply? Well, it applies to the question of whether or not we gather for corporate worship with some in the Pentecostal community who deny the Trinity. And it gets more difficult because the Pentecostal community comes more directly through the great tradition of Christian orthodoxy than the Mormons do. And the other thing is most Pentecostals, as far as I know, are not polygamous. And so, again, this yuck factor, you know, the Pentecostals don't have it. The Mormons are trying to get rid of it, but it's still not completely gone. And so most of us can have some 
courage with Mormons that we won't have with Pentecostals. But does it matter? Does it matter? If people who specifically call themselves Christians, specifically come out of the Bible-believing churches of the last couple of centuries, who in every other way seemingly have a Christian faith, but again deny the Trinity will not baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, despite the direct command of Jesus Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, despite the direct command of Jesus, will not do it. Does it matter to us? Now, I admit that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this statement, I don't think had any awareness that the time would come 2,000 years later that some pastor would make the application of this little phrase to the Pentecostal communion or to the Mormons. But I guarantee you that the Apostle Paul knew that there would never stop being an attack on the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so he's not accidentally throwing in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and, you know, it just kind of filled out the sentence. But he is putting that in because he knows that we must believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, I won't go into it much, but the reason we must believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ is that if Jesus Christ is not God, then no sacrifice for our sins could ever pay the price and get us released from death in this life and the life to come. There is no man who can do the work of salvation. No good man, no very good man, no very good prophetic man. And how interesting... And listen to me carefully. How interesting that those very traditions which deny the divinity of Christ always fill up the works that will get us salvation with some other method than the cross of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, the Mormons are not preaching a gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, even the most objective, faithful, uh, a friendly observer of the Mormon church can see very clearly that the Mormon church is caught up not in salvation through the vicarious death of another for us, but rather through good works. And so if you want to analyze the truth of a religion that looks very similar to Christianity, the perfect way to do it is not to start with their view of works, but to start with their view of Christ. And if they deny the divinity of Jesus Christ, and, and I admit it is very hard to get them to deny that, usually you have to study their primary sources yourself and then point to them as you talk to them before they are willing to admit that they do deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. But if you know what their holy books say, you hold it in front of them, and you don't let up until they say, Uncle, they will admit that, yes, Jesus is God as you and I can become God. All right? And so it's no surprise then to find that you're in a religion of works. Now, we'll come back to the subject of works. But I want you to meditate on the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Even little throwaway phrases in the middle of little verses, in the middle of an introduction that are seemingly going somewhere completely different, you have this text, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, parallel construction all through the New Testament. This teaches you something. It teaches you that your soul's health and life is tied to the divinity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is God. Now our second question. If the work is done by God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, how is that work done? Well, again, the question is answered in the text. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. So here's how the work is done. Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. The 
The work of blessing man with grace and peace is done by Jesus Christ giving himself for our sins. And again, this is a theme that is frequent throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New, from the first books of the New Testament, the Gospels, the whole way through to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. When we ask how we receive grace and peace from God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, we find the same answer again and again. What? Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that we might be saved from those sins. Jesus lived a perfect life as obedient to the will of His Father as we have been disobedient. And then despite deserving nothing but endless rewards from His Father's hand for that perfect obedience, He went to the cross paying the penalty we deserve for our rebellion so that we might go free. And you know the Bible in so many places repeats this truth. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, writes the Apostle Paul, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and what? And gave Himself up for me. Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ also loved us, loved you, and gave Himself up for us, for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians 5.25, speaking of the relationship of husbands and wives and of the duty of husbands to love their wives. This throws in this incidental phrase. It says, husbands, love your wives just as what? Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 1 Timothy 2.6 Jesus gave Himself as a ransom for all. Titus 2.14 Jesus, He, gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession zealous for good deeds. And so here we see again and again all through Scripture this account of Jesus giving Himself up for us, sinful men, sinful women as we are. And His Father participated in this work. Now how would it be that His Father would participate in this work if you were to say, uh, how did God the Father participate in the work of God the Son? Well, we know that God the Father, His wrath against sin and against sinners was turned aside by the Son. So, there's some agency in that, that the Father had character and perfections and attributes which required that sin not be overlooked. And so that would be participation. But there is another much softer thing, something that's much more appealing to our hearts in the work of the Father. And what is it? Well, it is that the Father loved the Son and that He sent the Son that He, having the character and the attributes and the perfections that required that sin be condemned and that sinners be cast into hell forever, He Himself loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son. And so the Father is not just sitting there wrathful against all sin and sinners, but at the same time as He is wrathful, He is loving and He sends His Son to be a sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And so we read in Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And so you ask yourself the question, He, being Jesus, who was what? Delivered over. Now who delivered Him over? Who are you going to give the agency to? Is it Pontius Pilate? Why am I laughing? I don't know. Because I can just imagine being one of those Roman dudes, you know, who thought he had absolute power over Jesus. I mean, this is just like America, boy. We think that there's no place in the world you can stand and not be under the authority of the United States Embassy. If our president decides to do something, it will be done. 
UN Council, be hanged. Right? And so here you have Herod and Pontius Pilate, right? And this man, this long-haired hippie dude, is standing in front of you and he's got a bunch of scraggly followers and they're cowering in the courtyards and, and cursing with many curses that they don't know the man and a bunch of women crying. Who are you? Don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? You have no power except what you've been given from above. And so when the Bible says he was delivered over, Pontius Pilate delivered him? Herod? How about the Sanhedrin? Jewish leaders? Who delivered him? There's only one answer. You have no power except the power that has been given you from above. There's only one person who could deliver that son. (laughs) Come on, men. You have sons. Who's going to touch your son, huh? Ain't going to happen unless the Father gives the Son. And that's what Jesus did. So it wasn't Jesus just going off and appeasing the wrath of His Father. It was Jesus being sent. Jesus came into this world an act of His Father's love. And you have to ask yourself the question, who had greater love, the Father or the Son? Who loved us more? And it's an impossible question. It's like the time I asked Heather when she was, or oldest, when she was three years old. I said, Heather, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? (laughs) And she looked at me and she said, she said, that's a bad question. (laughs) And it is. Who loves us more, the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit? There's no answer. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is an Old Testament of God who is wrathful and angry, and the New Testament is of God, Jesus Christ, who's soft and cuddly. That's a despicable lie of Satan. You will never come to the cross until you have been driven there by the law of God. And the law of God is the Mosaic law, and it is not in competition but it is the schoolmaster to the gospel. We never think we're saved by it, but it is sure useful. How do you know that you need Jesus? Well, if you read the op-ed pages of the Herald Tribune or Times or Indianapolis Star, if you listen to Oprah Winfrey, if you, if you turn the radio to Dr. Laura or Dr. Phil or whoever all these doctors are, you will easily be led to believe that Salvation simply amounts to being well-adjusted in life. And being well-adjusted in life is a nice combination of going light on yourself when you're being too hard on yourself and going hard on yourself when you're being too light on yourself. And not listening too much to your father, but very closely to your mother. In other words, it's hopeless. If you ever try to put all the wisdom together and live by it, of course you're going to spend your life buying books. In Romans 8.32 it says, He, speaking of God the Father, who did what? Did not spare His own Son. (laughs) It would be one thing if it said, He who did not spare his son. But it didn't say that. It said, He who did not spare his own, his own son. And don't make the mistake of thinking it could say daughter, it couldn't. Jesus was not a woman, he was a man. And he was a son. And there's a truth there that is sex specific. It is that the father's commitment to his son was absolute. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is in any way demeaning to my precious daughters, Michael and Hannah, or Heather. It's not. But it says in Scripture that Jesus was a son and that His Father was a father. And it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, if this father whose wrath demanded an atonement for our sins for us to be saved gave his own son to purchase our freedom, our life, what else do you think he won't give us? Freely. I mean, after a son, everything else is small potatoes. After you've given up your own son, your only begotten son, what else is there that you would hold back? Well, my car. You know, my pension fund. My reputation. No, God the Father sent Jesus Christ His Son. And all through Scripture, we find this echo of this work. We find it in the Old Testament, most notoriously best known, where? In Isaiah 53. I mean, you can't miss this transaction, this exchange, this judicial moment where one person is in the dock and another person steps in and takes his place and suffers the judgment and the punishment and the other one is sprung free. All right? He, speaking of Jesus, prophetically was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And then skipping down to verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now there's no lack of harmony, lack of unity. There's no two or three or four or five voices of Scripture. All the voices and all the texts, they all come together in the person of Jesus Christ. All the texts that are before Him point towards Him, and all the texts that are after Him point back to the cross. And the Gospels, all four of them, are just a bunch of chapters which are a preface to the cross. And if you look at the, number, the amount of the Gospels that is taken up by pointing to the physical cross, both the things that say it's coming, the things that say it has come, and then the, the, the literal account of the death, of Jesus Christ. It's a huge part of those four Gospels. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging, by His wounds, we are healed. Now, let me ask you this question. Are you a soul that lives in fear of the guilt of your conscience? Are you a soul that lives in fear of the guilt of your conscience? And I address this Christian alike. I address this question alike to you who are Christians and to those of you who are not yet Christians. Do you live in fear of the guilt of your conscience and therefore of the judgment seat of God? Have you seen your sin and have you come to the realization that inside of you dwells no good thing but only deception and greed and envy and pride and laziness and, and, and perpetual rebellion against the character and law of God. Have you seen this? Do you feel it that at the end of the day you will have to admit to God that you have been a wicked and worthless servant? That although He made you for Himself, for His own praise and glory, you have turned your back on Him and walked away? That with Adam and Eve, you have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and found yourselves naked. That with King David you have gazed next door looking longingly on another man's wife and taken her for yourself. And that with King Ahab you have gazed next door looking longingly on another man's vineyard and taken it for yourself. And that with Peter, you have denied your Lord even with curses. 
And that with James and John, you have sought the best seats, the seats of honor, so that you could have precedence among your peers. And that with Ananias and Sapphira, you have lied to the church and therefore to the Holy Spirit, that you have claimed to give a certain amount of money that in fact you did not give. And that with John Mark, you have quit the work of the Lord when the going got tough and suffering and persecution appeared on the horizon. And that with the Apostle Peter, you have eaten with Gentiles only until someone who disapproved of Gentiles and looked down on them came into the dining hall. And then you switched your allegiance quickly and cast off the Gentiles for the higher status of companionship with the Jews. Have you found yourself in endless ways across years and years washing your hands of responsibility like Pontius Pilate, claiming the blood of Christ is not on your hands? Have you seen yourself engaged directly in the death of the Son of God with the Jewish mobs and their leaders? Have you cried out against the Lord Jesus? Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And with the Roman soldiers, have you spit and mocked him? Have you lashed him with the whip? Have you shoved a crown of thorns on his head? Have you cast lots for his clothes? Have you nailed his hands and his feet to the crossbars? And have you hoisted him into the air? And have you with the passers-by and the Jewish leaders as he hung there, suffocating, have you taunted, have you hurled abuse at him, saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And with the chief priests and the scribes, have you mocked him among yourselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Is this you? Can you recognize yourself here? Not in one, not in two, not in three of these cases, but in every single one of the cases that I have listed. Is this you? Do you feel the burden of your guilty conscience and do you fear standing before the judgment seat of God? Well, let me tell you, if this is you, you are right to feel the burden and to fear His throne room. Since it is God Himself who said, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment seat. It is His Son, Jesus Christ, who said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus. Now, right here, right now, weighed down by sin, seeing yourself accurately, seeing that you are indeed under the sentence of death in this life and in the life to come, you might make a terrible mistake right here. And it's a mistake that all of us are forever tempted to make because it comes to us so naturally. It conforms itself, this mistake, so perfectly to our insatiable pride. We turn from our sin... And we grasp, going down the chasm, there's no hope, you see it. You understand, that chasm is yours, you own it. And so grasping back, what do you grasp at? Well, you don't grasp at the correct thing, but you grasp at the thing that most appeals to your sense of pride. Namely, if this chasm is of my free will creation, which it is, if I myself have chosen to crucify Christ... If I myself have seen and fallen in love with a woman other than my own wife, if I have given myself to lying on my income tax forms and cheating in the way that I make a profit in the mutual funds, then I must now do a reversal and I must crawl back up the cliff because I'm the one that put myself down there. You dug the hole. It's your job to get out. I'm sure all of us had our fathers tell us that at one time or another. But this is one hole that is uh, infinitely deep and wide and it lasts forever. 
And there is absolutely no way that any of you, no matter how, much, how many years God gives you, there's absolutely no way that any of you can even begin to climb this wall. I don't know what the rating is, but it's off the charts. This wall belongs to God. And He has given it to His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why down through the ages, the theme of the Good Shepherd has so often appeared. And the most, the most notorious image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd is the one I remember from, from childhood. You go on the Internet, type in Jesus and Good Shepherd in Google and, you'll, you, and, and graphics, you'll find it. And it's that image of this chasm where you have this lamb bleeding, you know, caught by a bush, hanging over the precipice. And you have the shepherd with his crook leaning way down into the chasm and extending his hand and grabbing that sheep. You go to the Sistine Chapel and what do you see? You don't see all the versions of marriage that you can do and the different kinds of clothing you can wear as you do this different kinds of marriage and then... You know, you don't see images of how many times a day you're supposed to bow towards Mecca and how many times you're supposed to make the pilgrimage. You don't see images of all of the votive candles that you can light filling the cathedral. You don't see uh, lists of the distinction between general absolution and auricular confession. You know, you don't see accounts of how many masses and how many consecutive days your mother has gone to. You don't see any of that. What you see at this, even, even in Rome itself, in St. Peter's Basilica, what do you see? What you see is the hand of God coming out of heaven and grasping the sinner. And nothing but Christianity gives you this. There's no other religion that gives you a God who Himself sent His own Son. His own Son. Every other religion is what you do to reach up to God, to, to claw your way back up the wall, the chasm, that you cast yourself down in the first place. Or that your father cast you down. <laughs> it's always good to blame your dad, you know. But Christianity has the love of the Father sending the loving Son who says, I am the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd does what? The good shepherd gives what? He gives his life for the sheep. Why would God give us the book of Galatians? And I'm telling you, you're going to be given it. You're going to be given it until it's like the time my mother punished me for stealing chocolate chips by buying a full pound bag. And when I got home from school, she made me eat every one before I got up from the table. And to this day, if there were a full bag of chocolate chips sitting next to my bed at the time I'm most susceptible to the munchies, which is 1.30 to 2 in the morning, I would not eat a chocolate chip <laughs> because I've had just about enough of chocolate chips. At least by themselves. I still like the cookies. And that's what you're going to feel like when we get done with the book of Galatians. Because the book of Galatians is just on and on and on and on with the same theme of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, did it. And you go, okay, got it. They say, no, you didn't get it. God and His Son, Jesus Christ, did it. The Holy Spirit did it. Okay, I heard you the first time. You foolish Galatians, God has done it. I heard you. What has turned you aside, the path that you were taking? What is wrong with you? Hey, Paul. Chill out, dude. We got it. How many times do I have to tell you God did it? Paul, get some perspective. We know. 
We're Christians. We believe in the cross. Okay, Paul? If you're not going to believe, then cut it off. And Paul, (laughs) I don't know what your issues are, but I think you should solve them alone. And certainly not write them down for all of history. Do you think we don't hear you, Paul? Why is he doing this? Well, he's doing it because the Holy Spirit's leading him to do it. And why is the Holy Spirit leading the Apostle Paul to hit it again and again and again and again? The reason is that although you might be born with rebellion and disobedience against your parents, and you might hit lust when you're a teenager, and it might last until you're 49, and then you hit greed and power, and that might last until you're 65, you will die with pride. And not one of us wants the solution to come from God alone. And even if we take the solution as we come to the cross in baptism, we forget it and then we proceed in the Christian life with our works. And we say, you know, I know that Jesus paid the price, but, you know, I've got to do something. And Paul says, all right, fine. If if that's what you believe, then all the work of Christ was for vain. And you say, oh, chill out. I'm not saying that I don't trust in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. But, but Paul, look, you and I both know that people are going to take advantage of any system of salvation that's just grace. <laughs> you know? Uh, there has to be something in there for man And, you know, um, I was thinking about the medical profession. And what we do is we turn from our sin and we grasp desperately at straws of human improvement, thinking that our gaping wounds might be sewn up by our own hands and that we might be our own physician, our own nurse, our own pharmacist, that we might diagnose, prescribe, fulfill, and administer our own cure. You understand this? And we continue to turn back to our own works for our trust. But brothers and sisters, I want to close by reading from the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2 because you have to see what exactly your condition is. And your condition is all through Scripture described as being dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. In Ephesians 2 it says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest. And then what does it say? It's got that great, great word, But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, when even we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so, I want to close, as I say, I will often do this, by reading a little excerpt from Martin Luther. Speaking of Jesus giving himself for our sins, Martin Luther writes, These words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of righteousness, like as is also this sentence of John, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, we must with diligent attention mark every word of Paul and not lightly consider or pass over these words, for they are full of consolation and they confirm fearful consciences exceedingly. How can we obtain forgiveness of sins? Paul answers that the man who is called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has given himself for them, for our sins. These are excellent and comfortable words and our promises of the old law that our sins are taken away by no other means than by the Son of God delivered unto death. With such, now, here we are. 
Martin Luther realizes that this truth will be attacked in your consciences and hearts. And he says this. He says, with such gunshot and such artillery must the papacy be destroyed. And all the religions of the heathen, all works, all merits, and all superstitious ceremonies. For if our sins may be taken away by our own works, our own merits and satisfactions, then what, did the need, what was the need of the Son of God to be given for our sins? But seeing He was given for our sins, it follows we cannot put away our sins by our own works. And again, by this sentence, it is declared that our sins are so great, so infinite, so invincible, that it is impossible for the whole world to satisfy for one of them. And so, if you have this, if you have this awareness... That there, is, that there is completely, utterly no hope for you. That all of these sins recorded in Scripture of all the godly and the ungodly are you. Whatever you do, don't turn to religion. Don't turn to ceremonies. Don't turn to superstitions. Don't turn to the university and the philosophy department, the religious studies department. Don't turn to Rome. Don't turn to Scotland. Don't turn to baptism. Don't turn to the Lord's Supper. Don't turn to membership at Church of the Good Shepherd. Don't turn to your godly grandmother. But turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to the cross. Turn to the blood pouring out of the cross and realize that by His wounds you are healed. Healed. Let's pray. Now, Father... Since you have sent your Son into this world to die, your beloved and only Son, and since you have said that no man comes to you unless you, the Father, draw him, we know that one person here, not one of them, that I, that no one can themselves believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be saved unless your Holy Spirit gives them faith, this gift, which is more precious than any. Father, then we ask that your Holy Spirit will give us faith in the Son of God. That we will believe not in self-improvement, but in Jesus' improvement, Holy Spirit improvement, God improvement. That we will believe in the death of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God covering us and all of our sins. Father, the little boys and girls and the men and women and the older fathers and mothers who are gathered here, give every soul here faith in Jesus Christ. Make them completely aware of their sin and make them have hope only in the work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.